0: So last week I warned you that I was going to take you take a little departure from my normal way of preaching to t- give some time to teaching about some of the problems in Corinth from our our third reading here today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, welcome to part two of this uh, this discussion of what's going on in Corinth. For the story so far, for those of you um, who maybe weren't here last week uh, or who have slept uh, since then, we will uh, refresh just for a second. Um, one of the things that sometimes I hear out in the world is that some, is when someone tells me that when they have a problem, um, they, they do this thing, and they, they pick up a Bible. And they let it fall open where it will, and they do a little like zoop and then and, and touch it and wanna and it's the thing that they need to hear uh, at that moment. Have you heard of this happening? Maybe you do this? Maybe you've done it, I don't know. I'm afraid that if it fell open to first Corinthians for you, you might find the words less than applicable at first glance. In Corinth, there were disagreements about whether Christians could eat meat sacrificed to idols, for instance, not exactly a hotly debated issue on the news these days. Paul spends a lot of time discussing a certain marital problem that I have honestly never encountered professionally or otherwise. But also people are showing up to the Eucharist and getting sloppy drunk from the wine. I mean, even when we were serving wine, you'd only get a sip while someone else's hand gripped the cup like you were about to abscond with it any second. I mean, maybe it's a reaction to the Corinthians that that is the way that we give you the wine, but I don't know. Maybe this advice isn't so applicable anymore. But as we talked about last week, for every unrelatable problem that we come across with the Corinthians, we do see something universal in them as well the problems of how human beings relate to each other. We do know about power struggles and greed and abuse of substances, problems in relationships, the way that our hearts are swayed and controlled by someone's charisma. It was all there 2,000 years ago in Corinth, and it remains here now. And some people say, That we study history in order that we might not repeat the mistakes that we read of there? I don't know. The repetition of similar mistakes seems pretty self evident in my study of history. This pattern of abuse and neglect writ large over time. This is why I like what Paul has to say and how he answers these questions from the Corinthians. He doesn't claim to have some advice that that is instantly going to make you a good or worthy person. No protocol to make you a better neighbor or spouse. He's not going to give you the list of the seven habits of highly effective people or, you know, that one weird trick to melt stubborn belly fat. Like, he just doesn't have this for you. He brings us back to the gospel time and again and says, something happened here with Christ that broke that pattern of abuse and neglect writ large over human history. We built a world on rivalry and competition, a machine that cranks out violence and scapegoating and it runs on it. But instead of fighting back with its own weapons, repeating that pattern, God entered into time and submitted God's self to this machine we built. Paul's claim, Christianity's claim, is that something fundamental shifted in the universe because of that submission. So the final problem in Corinth that Paul wants to discuss is the most important of any, he says, because it underlies all of what he has said so far. We discover in chapter 15 that among the Corinthians, there are apparently some who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So it would not be unusual for the average Greek to not believe in resurrection. Uh, At the time, the dualist thought of Plato and Aristotle dominated the known world, right? In Platonism, there's a physical world, the earthy things that you could touch and taste, full of bodies that stank and sweat and aged and died. But then, there was an ideal world, the world of the perfect that existed in some disembodied state, okay? Think of a chair, Plato says. The perfect chair. Seriously, think of it. The perfect chair. You've got it, right? It has legs, it's made of a certain type of wood, it has this pleasing shape to it. But the perfect chair can only exist in your head, Anytime that that chair becomes manifested physically, there is error involved. It begins to age immediately. It doesn't support the right spot on your back. It scuffs the floors when it's moved. The grain splits in one spot. All actual physical chairs, in this idea of of how the world works, all the physical chairs you see are just imperfect versions of that Perfect chair that can only exist in your mind. Okay? So too with the soul for Plato. There is a perfect, ideal soul within you. But right now, it exists within a body that gets hurt, gets hungry, gets acne, gets diseases, gets old. At death, the soul would be freed from this fleshy, imperfect tent. So that's the idea. And most of the Corinthians quite naturally agreed with this Platonic thought. But Paul had come to them with a different message. And this message was resurrection. It was a difficult teaching. It seems as though it was not totally accepted Maybe some of us have that in common with the Corinthians. But Paul insists that of all the things that Christians believe, this is the foundation on which it all rests, that Christ was raised from the dead. Not as an unearthly spirit or some kind of ghost, but as a body that you could feel and embrace, as a man who could eat food and bore the scars of his life. And this was the fulfillment of all the promises made across the millennia to God's people, that the greatest enemy of creation, death, had been defeated. The promise of God was never to throw away the world in order to live eternally in a better one, somewhere else in some disembodied state. That was always Plato speaking, not the God found in the Hebrew scriptures. A different Plato. The promise was that we were not made for death and that all things would be remade. The perishable shall put on the imperishable, as Paul writes in our little bit of the letter that we have today. The metaphors we heard read about wheat and dust are Paul's attempt to put images around the hope that he's proclaiming, that maybe you've seen this happen somewhere in the world, that something miraculous grows from the very dead places of our lives. You'll notice that I still have not reached the point of explaining why this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Unfortunately, I have only 100 words remaining in this week's allotment, Um, so next week it is for the uh, maybe not-so-thrilling conclusion of how a teenager came to love the Apostle Paul. But suffice to say that this week, there is a, a universal problem that Paul is driving at, one that was deeper than we imagined, one that no amount of effort or ingenuity could get us out of. Corinthians want Paul to give them the right answers, to order their lives correctly. So maybe history won't repeat itself again. But the Christian story has been decidedly pessimistic on that front. Our story has never been about us improving our way to God, finding God through our own will or study or action. It has always been about God intervening on our behalf. It's why we cry Hosanna every week at the Eucharist. It's an old word. It means something like save, a petition, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna.